This is Recode Media, Peter Kafka. That's me. And as you all know, the internet is a great place to, to find funny things, a great place to, to be funny intentionally sometimes. It's not traditionally a great place to make money doing funny things. But my guest today says he has figured out how to do just that. Please welcome Sam Reich from The Dropout. Is it Dropout or The Dropout? It is Dropout. There is no The because there's a Facebook. movie called The Dropout. <laughs> yeah, there is, which we're still we're still battling on Google for first search result. If you are old like me, you remember you may remember a site called College Humor, and that is the what would you say antecedent, predecedent? Yeah, the, something like origins. that. It's the very, origins of Dropout. Very recently was the limb that we we cut off. So Sam, why don't you briefly explain sort of what Dropout is, and then the next question I'll, I'll just tee up for you in advance is. How did you move from college humor to dropout? I am fully incapable of speaking today, so apologies to everyone. <laughs> hey, listen, it's 9 a.m. in L.A. We'll, we'll stumble through this together. It's noon um, in New York. I have no excuse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, God, college humor had a, a labyrinthine history, but uh, basically started in 99, so it's like a new media dinosaur by Ricky Van Veen and Josh Abramson. There were a couple of other partners, Jake Lodwick and Zach Klein, who started college soon after kids, that. College kids in Maryland, right? Literally making yes. sort of like, send us your beer bong photos. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it was sort of both uh, aggregator of humorous college content as well as simply funny content from all over the internet. It was kind of like the college-themed e-bombs world mm -hmm. of its era. And uh, there was, however, an editorial staff, you know, a group of a small group of comedy writers who were powering the um, uh, powering the website. And I was brought aboard seven years later in 2006 to start making video, whatever that meant. And there were something like 18 of us at the time working at a, a loft south of Broadway on Canal Street. So the, the, the real short version of the story is we were bought by IAC, Interactive Core, conglomerate that owns, you know, Ticketmaster, LendingTree, Match, Tinder, Vimeo, Angie, later, Vimeo. Yeah, list, a lot of those um, have now been. All kinds of random stuff that eventually they spin out into standalone companies. That's the idea of IAC. That is the idea, yeah. Sort of an anti-conglomerate in that way. We had gosh, what, 13 years under IAC, something like that, where they relatively patiently tried to turn us from a small successful company into a giant successful company. None of those efforts really came to fruition. And then they understandably uh, got bored of us in, in, in late 2019, early 2020, tried aggressively to sell us. That didn't work out very well for them. We were about a year into the effort with subscription at that point. And I saw an opportunity to rush in and, and take it over, and I did. And we've been running with it with it ever since, and it's been going really well. So yeah, so I so IAC tried a bunch of different things with college humor. There was at one point they were very excited about what was then called the Louis C.K. model, where they were gonna like, mm -hmm. which was related to college humor, where they were gonna like let comedians like Aziz Ansari build and sell their own comedy shows, and and you guys yeah. were spending a lot of time figuring out the Facebook model and the YouTube model with some degrees of success. 
but yeah. not enough to make a difference at a company the size of IAC. And also to be a little yeah. cynical about it, Barry Diller likes some small businesses that don't make mm -hmm. a lot of money, but they have glamour attached to them. Sure. And you guys weren't that glamorous. You, I think, and you correct me if I'm wrong, you guys did end up becoming a really important comedy hub. A lot of people went yeah. from college humor to all sorts of other bigger, more glamorous jobs running us. It's true. If you look at the first generation of talent that came out of uh, the College Humor editorial staff, these were people hired to like create photo galleries and uh, find funny links on the internet who then ended up writing for the website and starring in some of the videos I was producing. So that collection of writers moved on to The Daily Show last week tonight. Two of them became head writers of Saturday Night Live. And the pedigree of that group is... is uh, it's remarkable. So for a lot of folks, that'd be great. That's enough. But for IAC, that was not enough. And they said, we're, we're going to sell this. And if we can't sell it, I think they were going to pull the plug entirely, right? Yeah. Oh, it wasn't enough for IAC to be a charity for <laughs> young, aspiring comedy people. Everyone aspires to be a stepping stone. Right. So they say, all right, um, this thing isn't working. We can't find a buyer. It's not a real business. And you say, oh, that's something I would love to own. How, 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 does, that, <laughs> how does that process work in your head? What can I say? I'm a glutton for punishment. Yeah, I. so there were a bunch of turning points throughout the journey with IAC along the lines of this business model isn't working. It's not working to the extent we would like for it to work. Let's pivot and try something else. And the first was from ad sales into television. Um, you know, the ad sales market was being eaten up by social media, mostly uh, middle class publishers like us uh, were suffering. Then from TV, you know, turns out it's who knew it's really difficult to make money on television, especially as a production company. So we had a medium amount of success over the course of the handful of years we were trying to produce TV. We made Adam Ruins Everything. That was probably our biggest claim to fame in that chapter. And then we pivoted from there into subscription. And we were only doing subscription again for about a year before IAC said, you know what? We tried. We cannot transform this business. Let's sell you. And I think what made that challenging for them was we were in the middle of a huge investment in subscription when they decided to pull the plug. So on paper, we looked like a business that was losing a lot of money. So there were 15 would-be buyers in the data room going, College Humor, legacy comedy brand, looks really interesting. And one by one, they all saw that we were we lost something like $10 million that year. And they were where, like- Where no was all the money being spent when you said it was being spent on subscription? What is it, What are the costs involved? Yeah. So we launched subscription as Dropout. And that was a combination of building the platform, creating the content. It was mostly creating the content. I mean, that's that's- uh, that's for the most part what it was. It was a, a large in-house staff. I mean, we were, I think, 105, 107 people at that point. They uh, they tried to sell us. It didn't work out. So, again, big money losing company yeah. um, is going to get shut down. You say, I'd yeah. like to buy it. First of all, what did you, what did you pay for it? Uh, nothing. Zero dollars. You should Zero dollars. Like a dollar, I assume that's usually in the standard sort of. There may have been a dollar somewhere in the contract. Yeah. And then I assume you that then you are then taking on their, their liabilities. So all of their problems are not your problems. 
Yeah, taking on liability entirely, and they are a passive partner in the business. Um, that that was the deal, right? So they actually had one other offer um, for a few million bucks, and that offer was, you know what, lay everyone off. We'll take the assets. We'll see what we can do with it. And my offer was, you remain a uh, you know minority passive partner in the business. And you'll make more than a couple of million bucks with me over time. Who knows whether or not they really believe that. I think um, it was a better story. Uh-huh. Uh, and if there's one thing I've learned about ISC over the years, much to their credit, is they like a good gamble. Yeah. So what was your plan to make it work? And why did you think it would work for you, but not for them? Yeah. I mean, I think that corporate America... It's it's funny to say this in the context of IC sitting and waiting for 13 years for us to become successful, because arguably they had the patience of a Zen master. Mm-hmm. But I saw a lot of impatience in my experience in corporate America, which manifested in constantly pivoting. You know, what's the get rich quick scheme? Oh, you know what? That's not going to work for us, or it was a it was a failure to launch, or you know we're going to back this with million dollars and uh, millions of dollars and rush it out the door. It's not going to work. Doesn't end up working how we wanted to. We pivot into something else. And I thought that if we were patient enough with this subscription business over time, it showed all the trappings of eventual success. It just needed a little bit more handholding. So when you bought it, it was already, it had already pivoted into the, not the dropout, to drop out. It's a subscription business, meaning if you want to watch any of the comedy we're making, you got to pay us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's the model you're still working on today. Yeah. It was five bucks a month when we launched. It's uh, six bucks a month now. And there's a bunch of it for free on social media. Mm-hmm. We, we, chop up the shows into clips and we put that out on our social media profiles and that's the sort of window shopping experience into dropout a lot more people have seen dropout on social media than our subscribers but if you want to watch the shows widescreen long form you have to subscribe so traditional sort of funnel right so we're going to acquire customers on social and we'll bring them in and we'll convert them to paid so how many how many subscribers do you have uh, so we haven't been public about an exact number, but we've been ballpark. saying, yeah, we've, we've been saying mid hundreds of thousands. So you can sort of guess where that mid hundreds of thousands That's $6 a month. That's a real business. It's a real business. It is at this point doing better than college humor ever did in its mm-hmm. history. And so when you pivot into subscription, I mean, I know a lot of people and I'm, I was older than the college humor demo when it was at its peak, but who are the people who were fans of college humor who then said, I like this enough to spend money on it. I've been getting it for free and now I want to pay yeah. for it. Who, who are those people and how do you make stuff for them as opposed to a general audience? And is there a difference? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, college humor had a lot of fandoms over the years. It's one of the results of being around for as long as we were. And I think the original college humor fans... Well, the first thing I'll say is all of these groups are in their early 20s, mainly. Like there's a there's a 
period of time in one's life where one is really passionate about comedy, and that's your your twenties. As you get, is older, it embarrassing that I'm I'm well past my twenties and I'm still oh, listen, <laughs> my friend? I'm going to be forty in the blink of an eye, and I'm still you know my lifeblood. But so the fandom actually is quite sprawling mm-hmm. um, today. It's folks anywhere between the age of you know eighteen and forty five, but the sort of beating heart of the audience is in their early 20s. Those are the people who are who are the largest contingent and the most passionate about us. And versus the audience for College Humor 1.0, you know, it's a very inclusive audience. We over-index highly on LGBTQIA folks. It's a very different demo than it was back in the day. So, I mean, how much of that is because that's just the natural evolution of what you guys were making and what the audience responding to? And how much of it is we have a core group of a couple hundred thousand people who want to pay us money that's different than making clips that we think millions or tens of millions of people will, will discover on Facebook and like. And most subscription businesses, especially editorial businesses, have to sort of think this through. Like, are you building yeah. for a, a pretty core audience? And is that is that different than a wider audience? Or is it all the same stuff? It's a great question. I I think a lot of this was very organic. You know, we set out trying to convert existing college humor fans because of course we would. So there were millions of fans on the YouTube channel. We rebooted some old web series that we thought they would still be into. We created some new shows that we thought appealed just enough to nerdy, passionate fan bases that they might get excited about subscribing. It was also stuff that we were really excited to make. And we didn't think a lot about it critically from the outside and under than the, other than that. We didn't think a lot about how are we going to attract new audiences who mm-hmm. aren't into college humor today to this thing. What's interesting is the audience for Dropout is largely there specifically for the shows on Dropout. I mean, those larger tentpole pieces, those reboots of old web series Mm -hmm. didn't work for the most part. And the shows that did were all new. I mean, our hit out the door was Dimension 20, which is this TTRPG show, comedians uh, playing a very funny game of Dungeons & Dragons. And that was nowhere before the day we launched Dropout. And 24 hours after we launched Dropout, that was the hit on the platform. Mm-hmm. This thing wasn't huge until we asked people to pay for it. And once we asked people to pay for it, it turns out that group loves this thing. But does that tell you anything? <laughs> yeah, I I mean, I think that like, so I've, I've said this before that that we set out with sort of acquisition shows and retention shows. And the acquisition shows were higher production value. They were scripted. We thought they were more premium. We thought these are the shows that are going to get people in. Mm -hmm. And then the longer form, unscripted, more personality-based shows were going to be the shows that keep people there. And then the former did neither, Mm -hmm. and the latter did both. And my loose theory as to why that is, is just like podcasting, there is this sort of reaction happening to how premium all content, especially streaming content, is becoming. And people want something a little bit more authentic. Mm-hmm. And what we're offering is this funny bridge between those worlds where 
You know, it's not Wednesday on Netflix. On the other hand, it's not just a podcast either. It's sort of in the middle somewhere. It's like... Uh, and you've got a troupe of performers and recurring cast members. And then I assume people yes. identify with one or multiple of them and they do spinoff products and that generates more interest or at least gets people to stick around. Yeah, there is this this sense of we're an ensemble. And once you get a flavor for performers that you like, you're going to see them pop up in all sorts of different programming. So one piece of this feels like you're subscribed to a television network and another feels like you're uh, subscribed to a social club. We'll be right back after a word from a sponsor. And we're back. Do you structure the company um, in terms of uh, ownership? Do those performers um, own a piece of the company? Do they share in success? Or is it pretty straightforward? Like, you're going to perform on this thing, and we're going to pay you X amount, and it's a pretty straightforward transaction. Yeah, it's it's more straightforward. We've explored um, the possibility of going co-op. Our relationship with IAC makes that a little complicated. So do tax laws and a bunch of other stuff. Um, a co-op are literally the the people would literally own the company. We talked to uh, Jesse Thorne about that at Maximum Fun. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's uh, is that is Maximum Fun, I believe, is the podcast company yep, that's yep. that's done that yep. recently. We are trying to structure in such a way to be as generous as possible and give as much back to the talent as possible. Our feeling about it is uh, this this company has been structured in so many different ways before it landed with us. And the one way it hasn't been structured is talent first. And we have that opportunity. So at the end of this year, we're doing our first ever profit share. Our hope is to be able to turn that into something more akin to a true residuals program. and. Once we do, I think what'll be interesting about it that I'm excited about is it'll be for everyone, including crew, that has made a dollar working with us throughout the year. So not just talent, but everyone on the call sheet. And how do you think about um, the t- the talent? So that's noble that you I mean, noble sounds condescending. I mean, it's good that you want to share the profits. Yeah, it bit. is that's right. A good idea and it's moral correct. and ethical. Yes, and also good business, right? Helps to keep people. Um, but I'm assuming that as your talent gets more popular, eventually other folks are interested in, in having them be on other shows, other productions. At some point, they may decide, I'd, I'd like to leave. I'm assuming you think that's a good problem to have. On the other hand, can you imagine a world where you say, look, um, I know you want to go work at this troupe or on this show, but you're really po- your show is powering a significant chunk of the company. Sure. We really want to find a way to keep you here or keep you participating in some way. You know, this is another way in which we're we're unique. So over the years, College Humor has had a relationship to talent where largely the cast was in-house on a full-time basis. And it's like you could be a cast member or go do something else. And so that created this natural, uh, it created this sense of us as a stepping stone where talent would move on to work on other things when they had that opportunity. We don't see people's outside work as a conflict at all. Our shows are batch shot in the sense that uh, we'll shoot a quote unquote season of a show Mm -hmm. over the course of a week or so. So we bring talent in and then that talent goes off and does other things. And that's fine with us. You know, we're a part of their lives. We're not their whole lives and we don't intend to be. So we're not exclusive with anyone. That includes our, arguably the star of our platform, Brennan Lee Mulligan, who's the GM of our uh, TTRPG show and is truly one of the most insanely talented people I've ever met in my life. He has 
a very successful podcast and Patreon that he does on his own. And so far, that only seems to have helped us. I think it helps talent feel more excited to work with us when they know that we're not wrapping them in any kind of an agreement. Mm -hmm. It helps them, I think, to feel like more like the work that they're doing with us is simply a net positive. They don't feel like they have to give anything up in order to do it, you know? Speaking of talent, you are you are on camera. <laughs> is that because I is cast that myself? Is that because you're enormously popular with the audience? Is that because you just needed a warm body? Is that because uh, running a company is actually your second ambition, and you always wanted to be on screen to begin with? Yeah, it's a few of those things is true. I mean, I I got into this business to be a performer. That's true, and then I realized that what I really had to offer was more so behind the scenes. I spent years and years at College Humor behind the scenes without making many appearances in front of the camera. And then it was sort of an accident that into this uh, process of producing the subscription platform, um, there was a need for more unscripted content on the platform. Our uh, writers were not necessarily very excited about producing more unscripted content. I took a stab at a show that I thought would work and bail us all out. And then that show happened to become very popular. What was the show? And so that the show is called Game Changer. The the uh, sort of log line is that it's a game show where the game changes every show and the players don't know the game in advance. Mm-hmm. So the whole show is me disorienting my cast um, every episode, sort of a somewhere in the middle uh, between a prank and a surprise party, I like to say. And that show just took off, and now I'm trapped in a game show for the rest of my life until the audience decides they're bored of me. Uh, Um, Do you ever have to think about, well, I could say this thing, or I just said this thing on camera, and it totally works as a performer, but I'm also the CEO, and I have to to deal with HR, and I have to to do all sorts of grown-up things, and maybe that's not appropriate. There's a little bit of that. I mean, I'm big into uh, uh, consent and, you know, people feeling excited about what they're doing and comfortable anyway. Uh And running a show like this gets a little bit complicated in that sense because I'm having to pull fast ones on my cast all the time. Um, But all that means is that there's lots of emails between me and cast members being like, hey, so are you willing to sign up for something a little spicy? It might feel a little like this. And then saying, yes, of course, sure. And other people saying no, and that's totally fine. Um, I want to go back to something we were talking about at the very beginning, sort of using the the social platforms, which I assume for you is primarily YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok to bring people in. You know, it's sort of well established that it's difficult to build uh, sustainable businesses um, sure. on those platforms. Obviously, they're enormously powerful marketing tools. Do you find that their usefulness to you ebbs and flows along with algorithm changes, or are they pretty consistent in terms of funneling people to you? I mean, I think since we've been marketing the platform, all that's happened in that ecosystem has benefited us in the sense of TikTok came along, was hugely popular, provided a kind of discovery mechanism that hadn't existed on the internet in a long time before it. And then when Instagram and YouTube both decided they wanted to become TikTok, all that did was give us more opportunities to reach people. Mm -hmm. It's nice to have all three in the sense that if we're not performing on one, we're probably performing on another for another reason. 
I, I talked with uh, one of the Try Guys uh, a couple weeks ago who nice. I was a little surprised to learn still existed because I thought they were sort of frozen in amber in 2015. Sure, But he was sure, talking sure. about They're the fact that, 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 again, all, all that discovery is great. That said, you know, they do long-form stuff. And as YouTube yeah. pivots into YouTube short slash TikTok, that's a real issue for them because they don't really make stuff that works at the moment in short clips um, or they sure. don't think it does. So do you have to think about sort of, oh, the, today the algorithm is telling us they want this. Can we feed it that or do we have to make something new or, or should we not even try? So, yeah, I mean, I think that if there is one thing that we've become good at, it's figuring this out specifically, which is the relationship between the long form content we put on Dropout and how that will result in short form content on social. And in a few cases, what that means is we're doing a bit of reverse engineering, thinking about the way a show, once it's complete in long form, uh, chops up on short form. It's, it's, you know, you can't have your cake and eat it too all the time. And we'll always opt for something we feel like works on dropout first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Um, but make some noise, which is the second show that I host uh, on Dropout, is a short form improv show that was conceived, spun out of Game Changer primarily because we thought it would be such a social hit. And boy, were we right. Um, your father was, it was the former Secretary of Labor under Bill Clinton. Rise was he? Rush. He was, I've heard. Um, I see him sometimes on my TikTok. Um, so you're both <laughs> hanging out in the same sphere. What does he think about what you're doing? Yeah, I he loves it. It's funny. My my. So I have a brother um, who's three years older than I am and a professor of sociology at Columbia. And we like to say we took our dad and divided him in two. And my brother took the serious academic uh, side of him, and I took the uh, ham. And we've both run with those careers respectively. I think, and I think that's really true. I mean, I think my father, as long as I've known him, has been a ham. I first thought to myself, I might be able to do comedy for a living. Watching him in a Harvard talent show <laughs> uh, when he was in his like early 40s doing a comedy bit, I thought to myself, that's what to do for a job. Has he has he made a cameo in any? I don't know if cameo is the right word because I don't know if your audience would recognize him. But has he appeared <laughs> in any of your work? He did. There's this awful bit in a show that we have called Breaking News where they like to do episodes where they pretend that I'm a right wing billionaire, and he made a cameo in one of those episodes talking about how disappointed he was in me. Um, oh, but I like you know, the levels at- there. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, he's played. I've had my mom on the show. I've had my brother on the show. You know, it's it's a he's family right, business. You know. All hands um, on deck. So how many years into Dropout are we? So we're five years into Dropout. We're three and a half years into uh, this independent version of it. And and what does the roadmap look like? Is it keep just the motor going and the thing running, and that is a goal, a worthy goal in and of itself? Do you want to uh, achieve global domination? Can you imagine acquiring other companies, creating other brands? Um, sure. Or you're like, this is good. We're, we're, what we're doing now is, is paying the bills. We're, we're set. You know, so my feeling about it is 
where we are today versus where, say, Crunchyroll is. Now, Crunchyroll is still niche streaming. But anime they have. Anime, yeah. They have um, something like 5 million paid subscribers, maybe a bit more. Suggests to me that the ceiling is still pretty far away for us. We are growing. I mean, we're going to end the year this year with a little less than double the subscriber base that we began it with. And all I know, we're I know doing, lots of media operators who would who would trade lots of things for that growth. No kidding. I mean, I you know we're we're pinching ourselves. So, and that's by the way affording to let us do a number of things that um, we're really excited to do, like profit sharing. I think all we're doing to achieve that goal is we're producing new content, we're marketing that content, and we're remain uh, remaining focused on slow, responsible growth as opposed to sort of. Uh, corporate manipulative growth. We're spending almost nothing on paid marketing. And I think that we'll continue to do this and see where it gets us. I, you know, I think the, the corporate days have taught us that, uh, uh, we shouldn't try to be too clever. Oh, I forgot my stupid standard subscription question before I let you go. Um, I'll ask it anyway. Um, Hey, Sam, it seems like everyone wants people to pay for subscriptions now. <laughs> Whether it's the New York Times or the Daily Beast. Vox.com does not offer a subscription uh, version, but we would like you to make a gift to us. Sure. Um, uh, on and on and on and on. I'm, I'm subscribed to two comedy uh, podcast subscriptions. Um, there you go. Because I am a nerd. Uh, so the, the shorthand is subscription fatigue. So so yeah. how, do you, how do you see yourself fitting in your customer's subscription diet. Yeah. I mean, I I think I feel, I may be, my point of view here might be a little bit out of date in the sense that uh, I've heard a lot more about subscription fatigue recently, like in the last year or two. I think, you know, the industry moves in ways where it's like we unbundle and we rebundle again and again and again in different ways. My feeling about it is like in a world where folks were spending 50 to $80 on their cable TV package and that's not happening anymore, the question is just how do they slice and dice mm-hmm. that same amount of money in this new world? We are very affordable as compared to some competitors, especially now that everybody has jacked up their do, prices. Do you think – and it's funny because everyone's like, oh, I wish we went back to the cable days where I just paid one fee and got everything and I think those yeah. people are – are not really remembering what that what those days were like. <laughs> I, I think this version is great because you pay for what you want. Yeah. Um, but do you think like do you think your customers who again are young probably don't have a ton of cash available? Are you yeah. part of their entertainment budget? Are you their going out budget? Are you their latte budget? How do you think sure. they think about their 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 six dollars a month? Yeah, I mean we're certainly you know the the cost of a cup of fancy coffee a month. I think I think entertainment budget, but I also think that the the reason why people remain loyal to us is because they end up feeling like subscribing to dropout isn't just a little bit of entertainment. It's like a minor part of their identity in the sense that they've learned through us how much they love unscripted comedy. They feel attached to us as people. They feel good supporting a company that does well by its talent and staff and crew. There's identity attached to the subscription. Yeah, I think a little. I think a little. I and there's community. That you know, being a dropout fan attaches you to a lot of other people who are fans and share share those values. So I think that once you feel that, 
$6 a month doesn't feel like very much at all. You know, once you feel like you're really a part of the club and we're, we're going, you know, we'll raise our prices very slowly uh, because I think we want to remain very affordable to, you know, the vast majority of people who are our fandom, who don't necessarily have a huge amount of disposable income. All right, Recode Media listeners, while you still can get in at the $6 a month price, go check out Dropout. <laughs> um, I did I did go to the site, by the way. You are not giving up anything for free there. So you maybe want to start over on TikTok, YouTube, et cetera. There is a free way. trial. There's a three-day yeah. free trial. Once but I hand yes, my credit true. card over. Yeah, you are, not, you are not giving out free samples <laughs> on this site. Great to meet you. Thanks, Sam. You too, Peter. Thanks. Thanks again to Travis and Jelani and Julie Myers as well. Thanks to our sponsors and thanks to our listeners. This is Recode Media. We'll see you soon.